All right, good morning. Good morning. Okay, we've already had the word preached to us this morning, and I'm thankful for that, so I don't know what much else I could add in terms of the clarity with which we've been exhorted to make God's word a cornerstone in our life. And to make that cornerstone real, we have to be willing to study God's word. Okay, the word of God's not like a book you just pick up and skim through and put it back on the coffee table. It's not something to be just memorized or perused. It's something to be studied. It's something to be applied. And uh, the Word of God's a wellspring of wisdom. That you, It doesn't matter where you go in the text and how many times you go back to it, God's Spirit can reveal the great deep truths of eternity. I'm of the opinion that God's Word is a living, breathing book. There's not a whole lot of difference between the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, and the written Word of God given from the foundation of the world. In Jesus Christ, the Word of God became flesh. It's the Word of God that proceeds from Christ's mouth when He returns as a double-edged sword. And it's the Word of God that ought to determine what is right and wrong in our lives. A lot of people today are looking for signs and symbols and all of these things. And they're looking for God to speak in the riddle when He speaks plainly in His Word. Why are we seeking truth in a riddle when it's here plain? When it's here plain. And so, it's a humbling thing to study God's Word. We need to study it. We need to read it like a book. But we also need to read it like a, like a, uh, like a school textbook. Read it like a novel. Read it like a textbook. And study it. So that's what we try to do here today. We're working through the book of Revelation exegetically, verse by verse. This will be the 51st sermon, exegetical sermon on the book of Revelation that started about a little over a year ago. And we're proceeding as the Lord gives opportunity. And today we're going to be in chapter 8. I do have these outlines if anybody's interested. And if you're just visiting with us and you're interested, all of these messages are posted online. Uh, You can subscribe to them via iTunes, just go to look up, uh, I can't even write uh, sensibly this morning. If you want to go look up Foolproof Gospel Ministries on iTunes, and it, you want to look up Studies in Revelation. And if you're interested, you can go back and any of these messages are there. Or if you just want to visit fpgm.org, and podcast. Go to the podcast link and you can listen to any of those and I hope they will be a blessing to you. Let's turn in the Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 8. I started this chapter last week and my intent is to finish it before my family and I leave for our missionary journey to South Asia on September 4th. So we'll be out of the country a couple of months and you guys might be ready for a break uh, in, 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 in this deep, deep book here. Um, our policy here as we study Revelation is to interpret it as it's written. It's plain language. There's no reason to allegorize it or try to make some mysterious interpretation. We can interpret God's Word plainly and in the, con- the immediate context of which it's written as well as the entire context of Scripture. And I don't think there's any hidden mysteries here. This is a clear revelation of how God is going to bring consummation to all things. Consummation that's been determined from the beginning of time. We have resumed our chronology that took uh, 
slight break with chapter 7. Chapter 7, if you might remember, is a bit of a parenthesis that shows what God is doing behind the scenes during this terrible period of wrath in which God is pouring out His judgment upon this world. Even behind the scenes, God is drawing people to Himself through one last great revival. A revival that begins just like in the New Testament in the book of Acts with Jewish preachers and results in a Gentile multitude. And this is going on behind the scenes as God pours out His wrath against the wicked and pours out trouble upon the nation of Israel to wake them up to the fact that Jesus truly was and is their Messiah. And once we get back into chapter 8, the chronology that stopped at the end of chapter 6 with the sixth seal judgment resumes again. So here in chapter 8, we're in the seventh seal. And we had this little book up here that we kind of used as a visual aid. This sealed scroll that Christ has and is presented to Him in Revelation 5, I believe is the title deed of the earth. Christ is the kinsman redeemer. He is the rightful possessor of this planet. Adam was given stewardship of the planet in the Garden of Eden. And like wicked Esau, Adam lightly esteemed his stewardship and his birthright, and it was given over to Satan. And from that time, Satan has been the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world. When Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, he offered to give him all the worldly kingdoms if Christ would but bow down and worship Satan. Now, if Satan hadn't been given authority in those worldly kingdoms, that would have been no temptation to Christ. Satan said very clearly that that has been given unto me. And we're in a time when an usurper wields authority over the planet. Now, God is sovereign and He's above all of that. There is no cosmic duality, good versus evil. God is sovereign and far above any evil or any good. He governs. And He governs as He sees fit. And as He sees fit is for Satan to have stewardship in this planet for a time. But there's coming a day when the second Adam will come back and claim physically. He's already claimed it through the hearts and minds of His people. But come back and claim which was lightly esteemed and given away. And part of that is judgment that will fall, a preemptive strike against this planet ahead of a ground invasion. And that ground invasion is when Christ Jesus comes back at Armageddon. And I believe this seven-sealed book is the title deed of the earth that's being opened here. And with each seal that's opened, judgment falls, in which God, just like in the land of Egypt, demonstrates that He is God over man-made gods. The plagues poured out on the people of Egypt weren't just random judgments that God just came up with one morning. It wasn't some natural occurrence that was explained in flowery language. This was God going right for the jugular of the Egyptian gods and goddesses. When God threw hail down, it was an attack against the Egyptian sky goddess, Nut. It was an attack against her agricultural deities, that the people worshipped. Even so, these judgments are attacks against man-made deities of the modern age in which God demonstrates Himself to be governor and superior. So as these scrolls are open, what's going to happen at the end where at the seventh seal, the seventh seal has been opened, this title deed is going to be laid bare. And we'll see a glimpse of what then happens in Revelation 10 when the kinsman redeemer makes a public reading. Just like in the Old Testament with the land transaction involving a kinsman redeemer. We see that with Jeremiah. The deed is laid bare, it's made public, and Christ takes rightful possession. And He does it by force. 
And that's what we see in Revelation. So we're here in chapter 8 with the opening of the seventh seal. The seventh seal judgment. The first seal judgment was the coming of Antichrist, the white horse. Then we had the judgment of war. The third seal judgment was economic collapse and, and uh, 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 epidemic and, and, and uh, famine and pestilence. And then that fourth seal was death, tragic death that falls in a plethora of places on this planet. Judgment by natural phenomena, things we see nowadays. The fifth seal were the martyrs of all ages crying out to God for vengeance. And God said, rest yet a little season for there are more appointed to your fate, but judgment will come. The presence of martyrs is judgment on the wicked because it guarantees God's vengeance. Then the sixth seal is nuclear holocaust. I believe this is a transition between judgment by natural phenomena into more supernatural judgments that can only be duplicated by God. When Egypt, Egyptian plagues came, for the first few, the magicians were able to kind of duplicate it in a counterfeit sense. And man can duplicate certain judgments in a counterfeit sense when man goes to war and famines and economies and things like that. But with the sixth seal, there's a transition. And what we see with these trumpet judgments is supernatural phenomenon that cannot be explained away in which the gods of this world are attacked and, and God Himself, the Creator, shows Himself to be ruler. And so this begins with the opening of the seventh seal here in Revelation chapter 8. And I showed last week how the seventh seal judgment equals the seven trumpet judgments. And it equals the seven, seven uh, vile judgments. And so all of this that we read throughout the rest of the book falls under the seventh seal. If you guys have ever seen fireworks explode, or you can see an example of this if you go back and watch the old video of the space shuttle Challenger in the 1980s exploding. When it exploded, there was an explosion like so, and then the arms that broke off the original explosion exploded. And the arms that broke off of that exploded as different pieces were exploding in the heavens. And that's the sense in which God's judgment is poured out here in Revelation upon the earth. You have that explosion of judgment. And off that original explosion, the seventh seal explodes to give us seven trumpet judgments. And then that seventh trumpet explodes to give us seven vile judgments. And that's the nature of God's judgment. A bombardment. You know, that may not run uh, parallel with your concept of a Creator God. And uh, an all-loving, all-benevolent God has been so skewed in today's modern society that God's judgment has been just swept up under the rug. And the reality is it's real. God knows the hearts of men. Okay? I have the great privilege of teaching a martial arts class. I have a dojo. It serves as kind of a platform cover for me when we go into closed countries and some of my students are here this morning. And everything we say and do in there, we try to do understanding principles that underlie any type of activity. And one of the first things I want my students to understand is the spiritual principle of reality. We need to live in reality. And the reality is whether you're a martial artist or not, whether you take, have a black belt or not, the reality is none of that matters in view of eternity. 
The reality is martial arts is not the most important thing in life, and if it is to you, then you don't need to be here. Reality is there is a God, and He's going to judge every single one of us for everything we've ever done, whether it's good or evil, whether it's open or secret. That is reality. And a righteous, holy God, full of mercy and compassion, must judge sin. And we see that here in the book of Revelation. And God gives us a way to escape these things if we'll repent and put our faith in Him. Not church attendance, not doing good things, not kissing up when the preacher's around, but a genuine heart decision. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is, friends, that doesn't come unless God gives it to you. Salvation is of the Lord. Humble yourself. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's judgment is real. And let's just uh, start at chapter 8, verse 1. Just a little review here. And when He had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. This is the eye of God's storm. We already saw the calm before the storm with the sealing of the 144,000 witness. Now we have the eye of the storm. Thirty minutes of silence. When you're waiting and anticipating the unknown, thirty minutes is an eternity. And I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them was given seven trumpets. The seventh seal judgment is the seven trumpets. Understand that. It all works together chronologically and fits with everything else. Now look at verses 3-6. through six. This is where I want to start this morning. We have a prologue to the actual judgment. John sees the, the angels stand with the trumpets and then we have a prologue before the trumpets are blown and the judgments are poured out. What did John see? Let's look at verses 3-6. through six. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it into the earth and there were voices and thunder and lightnings, and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. Let's just pause for a moment and pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to discuss and hear Your Word. I just pray that every word which is spoken would reflect truth and not personal opinion. And that You would open our hearts. Lord, we pray You give us ears to hear. Uh, let him that has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a word we can understand in our language, Lord, and seeing fit to bring your word to these shores when so many today live and breathe without even having heard your truth. We are truly blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look for a moment. What do we see here in this prologue to further judgment? John sees an angel he calls another angel. We're going to talk about that here in a minute standing before God at an altar of incense, offering up incense with the prayers of saints before the Lord. What we see very clearly here is a ministry of intercession. Intercession is when somebody goes to bat on your behalf. Somebody can intercede for you in a courtroom. Somebody intercedes for you if you're seeking a job and you give them references. 
and the boss calls the reference and wants to ask about your character, that reference is interceding for you. Okay? We are called as Christians to make intercession for one another. That means to pray for one another, to take each other's burdens. We're to bear our own burdens, but we're also to bear one another's burdens before the throne of God. That is the ministry of intercession. And we ought always to be a part of that. How many of us, when we pray, spend our time praying for ourselves? Lord, give me this. Lord, will you please do this for me? I want this. Lord, help me, help me. When are we, are we praying for others? Is part of our prayer life intercession or is it all about me? And I'm preaching to myself right now. I could spend hours every day if I took the time to remember all those soldiers on the field laboring for the gospel faithfully that need our prayers. If I thought about my brothers and sisters in Christ that are persecuted around the world or those close to me that are sick or struggling in their lives, I, it would take hours. So there shouldn't be any shortage of things to pray about. The ministry of intercession is what's taking place here. And as I see this picture that John describes, I'm reminded of some Old Testament imagery that I think would be good for us to look at. Turn to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. And here, God is giving instructions to the children of Israel about the building of the tabernacle. The tent in the wilderness where God would dwell as His people wandered. And then that tabernacle would be placed in Shiloh and it would be the place where people would go to worship God until the days of Solomon when the temple was built. And God gave specific instruction about how this tabernacle was to be built, the elements of that tabernacle, where they were to be placed, and all of it pointed to God's plan of salvation that would come through Messiah. The tabernacle itself was the gospel preached before the coming of Messiah. And it's interesting to study those things. But there was an altar of incense in that tabernacle that was also called a golden altar, much like the altar described which John saw in heaven. Exodus chapter 30, let's look at the first few verses here. This is God instructing the people through Moses, Thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth. A cubit's about 18 inches. Four square shall it be, and two cubits, in other words about three feet, shall be the height thereof. The horn shall be the same, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. So this is a golden altar the top thereof and the sides round about and so forth and so on. And it goes down and talks about the rings and the staves and the things that go with it. Verse 6, Thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony. So it was by the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Remember that veil, that huge thick curtain is what was torn in two when Christ gave up the ghost on the cross. Demonstrating visually that the barrier between sinful man and, and, and I mean, sinful man and righteous God had been breached by the sacrifice of Christ, and that now we could come within that holy of holies by the blood of Christ. That is before the ark of the testimony, verse six, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn thereupon sweet incense. Aaron was the priest, and his line would be the, the, the line of the priest. Aaron shall burn thereupon sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps, and he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord. 
throughout your generations. So this incense was to waft up before the Lord the smoke of the incense perpetually. And then it just goes on, verse 9, You shall make no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering, neither shall you pour drink offering thereupon. This Old Testament altar of incense, in Exodus 39 it's called, and in Numbers 4 it's called a golden altar, was there for the perpetual offering of incense. If you turn later in that same chapter of Exodus, the last four verses describe how the incense was to be made. Verse 34, Lord, Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, Stacte and Onica and Galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense. Okay? Of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, pure and holy. And then it goes on to say, Verse 37, As for the perfume which thou shalt make, do not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be holy unto the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto it to smell thereunto shall be cut off from his people. So in other words, this was a special uh, mixture of spices that would be an incense before the Lord. And it would represent, as we'll see later in the Old Testament, the prayers of the people. It was to be a unique incense that the people were not to duplicate and put upon themselves as a perfume. It was holy unto the Lord. So you have this altar of incense and the incense that was burned upon it. The imagery there in Revelation draws us back to that. Okay, This same altar, the golden altar as it's called in a couple of places, the altar of incense is also called the altar before the Lord. This isn't the altar of burnt sacrifice where the animals were sacrificed and then the blood put upon the mercy seat. This was the altar before the Lord. Turn to Leviticus 16, the very next book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And look what this altar was associated with in terms of a special day of the year in the Jewish calendar. Leviticus 16, 12, and 13. This is on the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Yom Kippur, which took place on the tenth day of the month Tishri, which is usually in the fall. On the first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. Then you had the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And then the 15th through the 21st was the Feast of Tabernacles, in which all Jewish males were required to appear before the Lord. Is that right, Ricky? Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. All, all Jewish males were required. To... Ricky's more of an expert on this stuff than I am. Got to make sure. But on this day of atonement, when Aaron made atonement for all the people and the sins of the people, a Sabbath of rest, this altar of incense was used. And this is what's happening in Leviticus 16. It's describing the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which the Jewish people will be celebrating not too far hence. Verse 12, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, so the altar before the Lord, this is the altar of incense, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. So what happened in the Old Testament is Aaron was taking incense with a censer off the altar and offering it up before God. God met with the people within the veil, 
on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant where the high priest was to enter only once a year. That's where God met with His people and this incense was offered up. Now let's fast forward to the book of Revelation. What does John see in heaven? He sees an altar of incense before the throne of God and an angel taking a censer and offering that up before God. So what we see in Leviticus is a picture of an eternal reality with regard to the saints and the prayers of the saints. On the Day of Atonement, the prayers of the people were offered up. It wasn't just throwing some incense. It was representing the prayers of the people being offered up to God on that Day of Atonement. This incense on a regular day was burned twice a day. And on the Day of Atonement, the blood from the atonement was sprinkled on that altar and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat as well. Now it's interesting because if you go to the New Testament, prior to the annunciation of the birth of Jesus Christ to young Mary, God annunciated the birth of someone else. At the close of the Old Testament, Malachi, it's about 400 years before Christ, God stopped speaking to the children of Israel in terms of the way He had spoken through His prophets and given the Word of God. And that between the Old Testament and the New Testament are 400 years. Now when you think about the birth of this country just barely 200 years ago, double the amount of time that our country's been a nation, God didn't speak to His people. And their hearts were elsewhere. They came back from Babylon and turned to idolatry, but they quickly went to the other extreme and fell into legalism and dead religion. You know, dead religion and legalism is just as wicked as idolatry and paganism before God. And it was 400 years from the prophet Malachi that, until God spoke again. And when was the first time God spoke in the New Testament? It wasn't to Mary about Jesus coming. Anybody know? The first time God spoke after 400 years was in the temple to a man named Zacharias. And Zacharias was a priest. And guess what he was doing when God spoke to him? If you turn to Luke chapter 1, we hear this. We all know Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, but there was things going on before that. You know, Christ would have a forerunner, John the Baptist. We talked about John the Baptist, an initial fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that will be ultimately fulfilled in the last days with those two witnesses we'll study about in Revelation um, chapter 11. It says in Luke chapter 1 verse 8, And it came to pass that while he, that is Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So Zacharias was in there offering incense, just like was described about Aaron in the book of Exodus, just like is described there in Revelation 8. He was offering incense before the Lord. Now look at verse 10. Look what the people were doing while this incense was offered. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And so this shows the, the link between that altar of incense and the prayers of God's people. I want you to remember that. And then it says in verse 11, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That's where the angel met with Zacharias. And then we know the story. And Zacharias was told that in his old age, him and his wife would give birth to a son and his name would be called John. 
And John would prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. John the Baptist. Zacharias didn't believe it. And because he didn't believe it, God said, well, I'll prove it to you. You're not going to be able to speak again until this baby's born. So Zechariah wasn't able to speak, and when his tongue came back to him, he assured the people that this baby who had just been born was to be called John and not to be named after himself. So this altar of incense is connected with the prayers of the people. And the prayers of God's saints, not the prayers of the wicked, the prayers of God's people are a sweet fragrance that rises up before Him. And God hears those prayers. And he, he smells of those prayers like that incense and they are a sweet fragrance unto God. We know that these things are linked to prayer in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 141 verse 2 says these words, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the sweet sacrifice. We need to think of our prayers before the Lord as incense rising up before His throne, praying in faith that He hears and answers according to His will. Isaiah 56.7 I'll probably have some of y'all help me read here in a minute. Isaiah 56.7 Even then will I bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. It's talking about the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. That's what the temple was supposed to be. Not a place of dead religion. Who was it that quoted this verse and said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves? Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus, right? Meek and mild Jesus. We all know the story of Jesus toward the end of His ministry going into the temple with a scourge of cords and driving out the peddlers and the, and the people who were in there making merchandise of God's house. It says He turned the tables over and literally drove the people out. We see this at the end of Matthew. Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. He says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. How often do we take what God sanctifies and use it for our own purposes? Many of the churches today in America are not houses of prayer for all people. They're not places where the believer gathers to encourage one another in this pilgrimage and learn the Word of God. They're businesses where preachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, say just enough to make sure money comes into the offering plate. They tickle the ears. Why are they scratching? Because the ears itch. God's house is to be a place of prayer. If prayer is not a part of our worship as a church, then we're lacking. Prayer, the preaching of the Word, the fellowship of the believer, these things have been lost on the megachurch. Did you know Jesus cleaned out the temple not once? He did it twice. Jesus didn't go in the temple and drive them out once. He did it twice, and they didn't learn the first time, so He did it again. You know, it's described in John 2 as well. John 2 was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at that first feast of the Passover. Okay, Remember John mentions several Passovers, and that's how we know how long Jesus' earthly ministry was. In the very beginning, Jesus did the same thing, and He drove them out and said, you've made this a house of merchandise. You wicked people. 
And then he did it again when he was in Jerusalem not long before his crucifixion. Now think about that. I was reading a book. I'm kind of I'm interested in various histories and things like that. And I was reading a book on Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art, and it was Aikido history. I was just interested. And I found this very ironic statement in a footnote in an Aikido textbook. Didn't expect it. I thought it was interesting and I think it's worth reading to you this morning. This is taken, taken from Aikido Exercises written by C.M. Shiflet, copyright 1999 on page 25. The image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, may be theologically traditional, but it is historically shaky. Someone who tells the religious and governmental authorities of his day that they are clueless fools, someone who assaults the clerks and officers of the First National Bank with a whip, and arms his followers with swords when necessary to ensure that only he is arrested, fits no standard definition of meek and mild. It is a holdover from centuries of Christianity as state religion when a meek and mild populace was much encouraged by those who would rule over it. So how convenient for the state churches to hammer it into the people, meek and mild, meek and mild, so they can control them. Jesus was meek. I think our understanding of meek is very different. Meek is not weak. Jesus did not take matters into His own hands outside of the will of the Father, but Jesus was willing to speak hard truth. And Jesus had zeal when necessary. And that's what we're called to be. He wasn't just this guy walking around just loving on everybody. It doesn't matter. You know, live however you want to. It's all peace and love. That's not Christ. Christ preached against sin. He spoke more about hell in the Sermon on the Mount than He did heaven. In fact, Jesus' words are what give us more details about hell than anything else in Scripture. Jesus rebuked the self-righteous religious leaders. Jesus rebuked the crowds who were following Him, not because they wanted to be changed, not because they wanted the food of the heart, but because they wanted Him to fill their bellies. And they wanted a miracle. Herod mocked Jesus, show me a miracle. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign, my friends. But Jesus, it says, the zeal of God's house hath eaten Him up. Do we have that zeal against unrighteousness? We're not to take up swords and fight. We're not to take bombs and blow up abortion clinics. That's wicked. God will judge that. But are we willing to raise a voice like Jesus did and take a stand against unrighteousness? Are we willing to raise a voice against hypocrisy in the church? And when, when the hypocrites are filling our pews and just living their life somewhere, are we going to love them enough to tell them the truth? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is speaking hard truth without getting fleshly angry. But we have this image of Jesus and it was connected to the temple which is supposed to be a house of prayer. And the temple had the altar of incense and that, altar, that incense was offered up and it was a representation of the prayers of God's people going up before His throne. So I want that imagery to be in your mind as we read here in Revelation 8. There's something else I want you to consider, another image. We don't only see the altar of incense in Revelation 8, and 
we, we associate that with the Old Testament altar, but we also see an angel performing the function of a priest. Another angel, as John says, in his priestly disposition, offering up the incense with a golden censer. And when I read that, another image comes to my mind. An amazing image. Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 are some of the most amazing verses in the whole New Testament. Because what they reveal to us is an element of our faith. And there's others of these elements throughout the New Testament. But an element of our faith that differentiates the Gospel of Jesus Christ from man-made religion. This is not religion. Make no mistake. Religion can't save you. It can only condemn you. When I preach the Gospel in Nepal to Hindus that are just in bondage to ritual and, re- and, and religion and Buddhists, I have to say it over and over and over again. Yes, Dharma Hoyna. Yeshu Christ Dharma Hoyna. This is not Dharma. This is not religion. Don't make that mistake. Jesus is not just another God you sit on your shelf with all your Hindu deities and you pay homage to Him and you hope to superstitiously receive some blessing. This is not religion, and Hebrews 4 shows us why. Verses 14 through 16, listen to these words. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Jesus is the high priest that offers up the prayers of the saints before God. Therefore, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities because He lived this life. It wasn't just about His death, burial, and resurrection. That's not all the Gospel. His active obedience, a life lived perfectly without sin in complete Submission to God's law while being tempted by the evil one, while being tempted by the flesh, while being tempted in all areas just as we are, made Him the perfect sacrifice. And because He was the perfect sacrifice, His death on a cross, His shedding of blood could be a substitute just like that lamb in the Old Testament, that bullock on the Day of Atonement. Jesus Christ without sin. Jesus never sinned. He never had a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. He never did these things that the wicked of this world want you to believe based on no historical evidence and their own hatings toward God. Now look at verse 16. This is this unique promise that religion cannot offer. Christ is a high priest that's been touched with our affirmities. Let us therefore, this is written to Christians by the way, come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Christ is a high priest to those that repent and trust Him, the Bible says we can come before the throne of the Creator of the universe, not quaking in our boots, not shivering with fear, but boldly before the throne of grace. And my friends, that is a promise that man-made religion cannot offer. The gods of man-made religion exist to destroy you. Hindus pour out their offerings to Shiva, the destroyer in Nepal, and they're scared to death of Him and they don't want Him coming anywhere around. They make offerings every day. Shiva, the patron deity of Nepal. The Nepali people didn't want to be colonized years ago when the British were colonizing the Indian subcontinent. They told Shiva, we will pledge our allegiance to you if you will keep the colonists from 
overtaking us. Shiva's the devil. He's the destroyer. He doesn't have a pitchfork and horns. He's a beautiful creature with long flowing hair and six arms and he's usually blue colored. But it's the devil. devil has many names. Shiva, Allah of the Quran. That's another name of the devil. Um, it's not God of the Bible. Um, devil's got a lot of names. But they pledged their allegiance to Him and now they worship Him, but they worship Him in fear. They have the priests come through the neighborhoods and blow the horns on the full moon that's supposed to keep Shiva away. We don't want Him coming anywhere near us. Shiva got so angry one time when his son walked in the door, he just lashed out at him and cut his head off. And then his wife got so angry at him, she told him, you better go out there and fix this problem. And so Shiva went out looking for a replacement head and the only thing he could find was an elephant. So he took an elephant head and put it on his son and brought him back to life. And now the Nepalis worship Ganesh, the son of Shiva, that has an elephant head. Hinduism's like reading or watching a Disney cartoon. It really is. And people want to say that all the religions are equal. Well, they are all equal. The Bible's just not religion. But religion bears gods that exist to destroy the people. Go read Greek mythology. What do those gods do? They did it to satisfy their own lust and pleasures. In Nepal, the proverb of the people says this, if Shiva does it, it's a miracle. But if I do the exact same thing, it's called rape. So that describes man-made gods. Muhammad, Allah, the God of the Quran, distant and unknowable. He acts rashly. The people are afraid in, in such a way that that they have no way or understanding about how to be made right with this God because this God doesn't exist to have fellowship with people. He exists to destroy them. That's not the God of the Bible and these verses prove it. God loved us enough. Oh, He hates sin. He's going to judge it and His wrath is beyond your comprehension. But God made a way for us to escape that wrath through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't just die and rise again. He lives ever, it says in Hebrews 7, to make intercession for those that follow Him so that we can enter the throne room boldly. If you're a born-again believer, don't cower before God when you go to Him in prayer. We, we should be humble and reverent, but you don't have to cower because the Bible says come before Him boldly. He hears. And we can find grace and mercy to help in time of need. But we've got to believe that and claim that promise. That's Jesus Christ, our high priestly intercessor. No man-made religion offers such promise, such consolation. 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us there's one God and one mediator between God and man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. You see, we can say we're living to God. We can say, I ask God to forgive me every day. We can say, you know, I thank God for the blessings He's given me. But friends, you can't even get to God without an intercessor. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So without a priestly intercessor, you cannot approach a holy God. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. So if you're not a friend of Jesus, you're not a friend of God. If you don't know Jesus, you can't come to God. It's, there's nothing more plain in all of the Scriptures than that. And that is what's most unpopular about the Word of God today in this society. So we see this imagery of the Old Testament altar. We're reminded of Jesus Christ in His high priestly disposition. In this chapter in Revelation, it talks about the incense, the smoke of the incense going up before God. When I see that, I'm also reminded of another element of intercession. Turn to Romans chapter 8. 
The Word of God is such that when you exegetically study any passage of Scripture, it's inevitably going to take you all over the Bible. The Bible's not just a book, it's a library of God's truth. It's like a whole set of encyclopedias about God and what He wanted to reveal to us. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. Not only is Jesus living ever to make intercession for His saints, listen to this. Likewise, the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now this isn't crazy, uh, weird tongues and gibberish. It says they can't be uttered. So this isn't some crazy preacher standing up and blah, 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 up in a pulpit and claiming it's God. It says groanings that can't be uttered. If they can't be uttered, they can't be spoken by a human tongue. Look at verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Not only does the, Jesus Christ intercede for His believers, but the Holy Spirit does. Sometimes, if you're like me, there are times I don't know how to pray in a situation. And I don't even want to pray. But this promise tells me that in those times, the Spirit of God prays for us and makes intercession before the Father that cannot be uttered. And He knows our infirmities. If the Holy Spirit lives within your heart, He knows your infirmities and He prays for you. So when I see that angel offering up incense in Revelation 8, I'm reminded of Christ, the high priest. When I see the smoke of the incense rising before God, I'm reminded of the Holy Spirit. And those groanings like that smoke of incense that cannot be uttered on our behalf. My friends, that's an amazing thought. Because of Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, we have those in the heavens making intercession for us. Jesus Christ the Son, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For the saints, it says here in Romans. He maketh intercession for the saints. Are you a sinner today or are you a saint? I'm not talking about a saint in the sense of Roman Catholicism and all this superstition. You know, the world can make John Paul II a saint. But God's the only one who categorizes sinners and saints and it's a matter of the heart. You know, we go preach the gospel at college campuses and we talk about what it is to be a saint. People get so angry. How dare you talk about being a saint? Well, what is a saint? The biblical definition of a saint is a sinner saved by grace. No longer to live unto sin, but to live unto righteousness. If you're born again, you're a saint. That whole stuff about popery and saints and all this stuff, that's man-made superstition that came right out of Babylonian paganism. And you see it in Hinduism as well. But saints are average people, just like you and I, that have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit makes intercession for the saints. I want to ask a question here, back in Revelation 8. It's a question worth asking. I think it's interesting how John says, another angel. I mean, you know, normally if you're just kind of describing what's going on, he, if it's just an angel, he'd say, well, an angel came, because he's already talked about angels, this, that, and that. Seven angels are there to blow the trumpets. But he says, another angel. And that word in the original language, another connotes that there's something going on here. And it begs the question, who is this another angel? Now some of this stuff I share with you in Revelation is based upon my study and 
what I seem to see happening here. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, like this is exactly what it is. But I do want to give you something to think about. This isn't dogmatic doctrine here. I believe that this other angel, another angel, is actually Jesus Christ in His high priestly disposition that John is seeing. Why do I believe that? Well, go back to Revelation 1. We see Jesus in His pastoral disposition. Pastoral in the sense of a shepherd and a judge in the midst of the candlesticks that represent the seven churches. Revelation 5, we see Jesus in His Redeemer, kinsman-redeemer disposition. Other places in Revelation, there is a quote-unquote angel that appears. And it seems to be Christ performing the functions of a prophet or a priest or a king. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, Jesus Christ appeared numerous times? We call that a Christophany or a Theophany. It's this idea where God Himself came down and met with man. A pre-incarnate revelation of Christ before He was born in Bethlehem. A couple of examples. When Abraham was met by the angels at, the tent, at his tent before the two went down into Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that Abraham stood yet, or the Lord stood before Abraham. That was God was one of those. God was the one that came in a theophany. When Jacob wrestled with that angel at Penuel, he wrestled with him all night, and that angel touched the point on his thigh, and it went out of joint. Jacob called the place Penuel. I have seen God face to face, and I've lived. That was a pre-incarnate Christophany of Christ. Okay? We see that in different places. Joshua looked up on the hillside and saw the captain of the Lord's host watching the people before they entered Canaan. That was Christ that appeared. When Nebuchadnezzar looked in that fiery furnace, he said, wait, I threw three Hebrews in there. Now there's a fourth. And he looks like the Son of God. It was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate disposition. When we get into that tribulation period, when I believe, after I believe, the church has been raptured out, God deals with people during that period much like it reverts back to the way He dealt with people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is taken out with the church. He comes and goes upon people during that time just like in the Old Testament. Christ appears in a um, Christophany type of disposition a few times. Men and women are still saved, just like they were in the Old Testament. An Old, an Old Testament saint wasn't saved any differently than a New Testament Christian. They were just looking forward in faith. We look back. The only difference is a perspective of time. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And it was never by the works of the law. The works of the law were given to Israel to demonstrate our sin and our need for a Savior and to drive people toward faith in Messiah. But it is interesting, if you look at Revelation 10, we're going to talk about this later, John sees an angel come down with a little book and he stands with his foot on the land and the sea and he reads this book and John is not allowed to reveal what was read. And then John is told to take that book and eat it and it's sweet to his mouth but rotten in his belly and he's told that prophecy must go out for years and that John would start that prophecy, that warning of these days to come. I believe in Revelation 10 what we see is a picture of Jesus standing on the earth and the sea publicly reading the title deed of the earth. 
We go to Revelation chapter 14. John sees two harvests. One harvester is a son of man. In Revelation 10, it's, it's, the angel's clothed with a cloud. Jesus is talked about in terms of clouds many times. In Revelation 14, we see it one like the Son of Man clothed with the cloud comes down and He reaps the earth. And then another angel reaps the earth in a violent way. There's two reapings, two gatherings. What I, see, what I believe we see in Revelation 14 is the first gathering, which is Christ gathering His church, and then the second gathering, which is God gathering the grapes into the winepress of His wrath. So we have the rapture differentiated or com contrasted with the battle of Armageddon. We'll talk more about that. But those are examples in Revelation of where what John calls an angel, I believe, are pictures of Christ in His various dispositions that He will serve and act during this period of tribulation. So, these are, the, these are some things to consider as we see this ministry of intercession in verse 3. Look at verse 4. It says, "...the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand." That's exactly what's going on in Hebrews 4. Christ the high priest is offering up prayers before God. The Old Testament priest offering up prayers before God. Here, the incense is the prayers of the saints ascending up before God. Because of Christ and His intercession, the prayers of God's people ascend up as the smoke of incense before His throne. For the wicked, the prayers directed toward God or whatever their heart thinks is God is something quite different. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, look what God says to the people of Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities or your sins have separated between you and God, and your sins have hid His face from you, and He will not hear your prayers. That's not the prayers being offered up here in Revelation 8. God hears the prayers of His people. He doesn't hear the prayers of those that, whose hearts are turned from the truth of the Gospel and the law of God. This is not Isaiah 59 here in Revelation 8. The prayers of the saints ascend before God. I think we almost have to pause here when we see this reference to the prayers of the saints ascending before God. We almost have to pause and consider some sobering thoughts about prayer. The Scripture has much to say about it. Prayer is often talked about even by the most wicked people in today's society. Our wicked politicians and these wicked people running this government, when something terrible happens, they want to throw around flippant language like our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Let's pray for this. God forbid we humble ourselves as a nation and pray in repentance like our early founding fathers exhorted us to do. You know, George Washington exhorted the nation to, to pray repentance in a time of war. Sobering thoughts concerning prayer. Let me get you guys to help me out here. I'm, my throat's kind of sore. I want to get through this and then we can... I, I need to get to a good stopping point where next week I can be sure to finish. Daniel, will you look up Psalm 66.18? Ricky, Proverbs 28.9. Here's some sobering thoughts concerning prayer. Number one, this may run amok of any concept you've ever had of God. 
God does not hear all prayers. He doesn't. He chooses not to. Just like I read here in Isaiah 59. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That doesn't even need commentary. If I regard, that means I serve sin in my heart. God doesn't hear my prayers. I can pray all day long. God, provide me. I need this. God, give me this. God, heal me. But if I'm regarding iniquity in my heart, He doesn't hear. His ears aren't heavy that they cannot hear, but it's your sin that's separated you between, between you and God. Who are those that regard iniquity and love iniquity and serve iniquity? It's the lost that have never tasted salvation because true salvation brings a changed life. Not perfection in this flesh, but victory over sin and things and fruit of the Spirit. God doesn't hear all prayers. Did you know that prayer... Now, 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 now brace yourselves. Prayer can even be a sin. Not prayer to an idol. I'm not talking about that. That's obviously a sin. Prayer to God can be a sin. Did you know that? Wow. Proverbs 28, 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. He that turns his ear away from the law, which is the Word of God, even his prayer is an abomination to God. How many people in this country today want to serve Jesus? I love Jesus. I love God. I ask Him to forgive me every day. But they don't love what's written in this book. And they go to churches where pastors preach sermonettes for Christianettes, little ditties about hoping and coping, and wouldn't dare say anything about sin because they got to make sure that the offerings keep coming in the plate. That's what they got to make sure about. These wicked false teachers on TV that want your money want to make merchandise of you like the book of Jude talks about. We've got all this stuff going on and people think, well, I'll pay lip service to God, but I don't want to hear what God's Word says. I don't want to hear what it says about homosexuality. I don't want to hear what it has to say about fornication and adultery. I don't want to hear what it has to say about women pastors. I don't want to hear any of this stuff. Well, friends, if that's your attitude about God's Word and the clear revelation, and is your prayer abomination before Him? Because you don't even want to hear what God's Word has to say. We can have honest debate and discussion over things that are difficult to understand, and we may come to different conclusions about some things in Scripture. But if you're not willing to discuss it, and you don't even want to look at what the Bible has to say, then even your prayer is an abomination according to God. Those are sobering thoughts, right? Sobering thoughts from the Old Testament. Let's look at some New Testament exhortation concerning prayer. These are things we need to remember. Oh, I've got some verses here. I know it's late, guys, but we're not like the average church. Nobody's rushing off to the Golden Corral. We have food here for you. So the time it would take you to load up your car and get to the restaurant, we'll just take that time here in the Word of God this morning. And if we were in Nepal... I'd only be the first preacher. There'd be another one coming up after me probably for another 30 minutes. If we were in Argentina, they'd have another 50-minute worship service after the preaching. So you're getting it well this morning. Um, Jason, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 18. Bob, uh, uh, Bob Hill, James 5, 16. Daddy, would you read Hebrews 13.3? Let's just look at these. These are New Testament exhortations regarding prayer. We need to think about prayer 
as it is mentioned there, being offered up to God. What is prayer? What prayer should be in our lives? 2 Thessalonians 5, 17 and 18. Yes, 1 Thessalonians, sorry. Pray without Pray without ceasing. So that tells us right there that prayer isn't necessarily sitting down and blah, blah, blah. Everything we do ought to be clothed with prayer. Prayer could be something as simple as giving thanks to God as I take a draft of water from a cold creek in the mountains. That's what General Stonewall Jackson during the Civil War used to talk about prayer. How, you know, I'm careful to thank God even for something as simple as a clear drink of water. And he talked about prayer governing everything he did in his life as he served his country. Okay? That's how he saw it in his day. My ancestors saw it that way. They didn't own slaves in the Civil War, by the way. They weren't fighting for slavery, obviously. Why would you fight and give your life for something that didn't even affect you economically? That's another story. Our country's fraught with revisionist history in these days. But pray without ceasing. And what is tied to prayer? In the next verse, giving thanks. Our prayers ought to be thanksgiving before God. Thanksgiving. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We know the will of God by His Word, and there are different things in the Word of God that very specifically say this is the will of God. It's the will of God for us to pray without ceasing and to give thanks in everything, whether it's good or bad. It says elsewhere it's the will of God that we abstain from fornication. As Christians, that's sex outside of marriage. That involves homosexuality and all this other wickedness. That's the will of God, that we abstain from those things. So don't tell me that you're a homosexual and you love Jesus and you've been saved and all that. No, you're not. You don't live a life of sin and loving sin. When you're saved, your attitude about sin changes. You may struggle with sin, but your attitude changes. What you once loved, you now hate. And you certainly don't go around identifying with it proudly and boastfully. That's not the will of God. And the believers know the will of God and follow it. James 5.16 Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In the context of prayer, we as believers are told to be transparent with one another. We shouldn't be trying to hide our faults and hide our sins from one another. We ought to be transparent and real in the church of God. Real. And then we are to pray for one another. Prayer is not only to be without ceasing and with thanksgiving, but for one another. How often are we praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ? All we want to do is appease the world. And we're so worried about what the world thinks. We don't want to offend them with the gospel, but we neglect our brethren. If you have love for the world and no love for your brethren, then your priorities are out of whack. Righteous King Jehoshaphat was rebuked in the Old Testament for palling around with the wicked and loving on those that hated the Lord. Obviously, we're to love all men with the love of Christ, but that's not to appease them or turn a blind eye to wickedness. It's to love them enough to tell them the truth. But prayer is to be without ceasing. It's connected to thanksgiving and it should be one for another in Christ. Ephesians 6.18-20 Did I give that one out? Oh, okay, I'll read that one. Ephesians 6. My Bible's so worn, I got pieces of 
pages from Hebrews missing. I've got the binding coming off so I can kind of get to these scriptures faster than the average person, but I risk losing pages being torn out when I do. Ephesians 6, listen to this. This is the end of Paul's life. This is when Paul is sitting in prison at the end of this book. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Praying always ought to be our life. Watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So praying for one another, watching vigilantly, being on guard always. And then look what he asked for the people, the saints to do in terms of praying for him. As for me, not that God will get me out of prison, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, that's why I'm in prison in the first place. So prayer involves praying for one another and not being ashamed to ask others to pray for us. Even in a way that reveals our weakness. Paul reveals here, he, the greatest missionary the New Testament church has ever known aside from Jesus Christ, one of the boldest preachers in all of history, he is confessing that he needs boldness from the Lord. And he's asking the saints to pray for him. So not only should we be transparent with one another and pray for one another, but we shouldn't be ashamed to show our weaknesses and ask the brethren to pray for us. Guys, I need boldness. Some of you look at me and say, man, this guy's bold. He goes out and preaches on the street. And I'm sure some of these brothers here who are involved in outreach visiting us today would say the same thing. We're not all that bold. Without Jesus Christ, I'm shaking in my boots. I don't want, I'm an introverted person anyway. I don't want to talk to strangers. I'd be perfectly happy just sitting you know, in a quiet place and not ever having to talk to a stranger again. That boldness has to come from the Lord. When we take these guys to Bangladesh, it's a, it's a little bit sobering to think that we're in a Muslim country and a, a mob could form really quick like it did with Ricky and I. We had to run for our lives one time. I felt bad about running. I, I really, really wish I shouldn't have, but um, the gospel had been spoken and uh, no one. there was just a lot of circumstances on that day. But we need boldness from the Lord and we need to be transparent enough to share it with our brethren when we have weaknesses. Hebrews 13.3 Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. We need to remember those in prayer who are suffering persecution for the Gospel. How often do we remember that? My friends, people are suffering for the Gospel today. They don't live this life of comfort like the American comfort zone Christian. There are people paying for their faith with their lives today. Look at what's happening in Iraq with this ISIS. They are murdering Christian people. They are, they are putting a gun to their head and saying convert to Islam or die. There have been mass graves. Women and children murdered and dumped in mass graves. People gunned down entire groups at one point. Now our country, we'll gather the troops and we'll go right in there to protect some you know, some Muslims here or, or to go to bat for the Palestinian terrorists. But man, God forbid we would take real action to help these Christians. Oh, we'll drop a few bombs, whatever, and satisfy the media. But God forbid we would help those um, that are dying for their faith in Christ and being butchered. We won't even call it genocide. We won't even call what Boko Haram, the, the, the Muslim terrorists in Nigeria are doing genocide. We won't call... What's happening in Iraq? Genocide. Because you can't commit genocide against a Christian according to 
the worldly mindset. Genocide can only be against Muslims or Hindus or atheists or whatever. There's no such thing as genocide against a Christian according to the world. It's amazing to me. But there are people suffering for the gospel. I know some of them personally. I know people who have been very close to Christians that have had their homes burned down. Who've had to be very concerned about being watched by the government. Brother James that we're going to labor with in Bangladesh who's been in this pulpit has to be careful with things. We need to remember these brethren in prayer. We need to pray for the ones we know, the ones we don't know. Those nameless brethren in Iraq, we need to lift them up before the Lord. Pray that God will give them the grace to endure and that their dying words would be a testimony of the Gospel. And we need to pray that God avenges their death. Just like those martyrs cry out to God in Revelation 5 for vengeance. We can pray for vengeance. In fact, these prayers offered up before God, and I'm going to stop here, these prayers offered up before God here in Revelation 8, we're going to see next week, are answered. And you know what the ultimate answer is to any prayer? Ultimate vengeance. The ultimate answer of any prayer offered up to God is vengeance taken by God against wickedness. It's injustice judged. It's unrighteousness made right. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 58, the wicked, I mean, the righteous will rejoice in the judgment. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked so that the ma a man may know there is a God that judges in the earth. There is a reward to the righteous. And isn't that the essence of all prayer that we would see what is wrong made right? That we would be free from sin that innocent little unborn babies would be free from being butchered in the womb, that people would be free from bondage, that we'd be free from war and torment and persecution. That's the essence of any prayer, whether it's for ourselves or for our, ourselves or for our brethren. And in Revelation 8, we see that answer. The answer that the martyrs are seeking in Revelation 5 when God says wait, or, 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 or they're told to wait just a little while, is answered. And the answer starts when those angels prepare to sound their trumpet. The ultimate answer is ultimate vengeance. I'm going to end here today. I, we could go on about prayer. I may not finish this chapter. There's some really interesting things that we need to consider about prayer from Luke chapter 11 and Luke chapter 18. So I would encourage you to make that a part of your Bible uh, study and meditation this week. Luke 11 and Luke 18. They're a side of prayer in which Jesus instructs us that we often forget about. It involves persistence. It involves crying out to the Lord, not being afraid to cry out to Him time and time and time again, while understanding that He hears and answers according to His will. I'm sorry I've run over a little bit. I did not get as far as I would like, but we're not on a time schedule. And we're going to preach the Word of God. History isn't dependent upon whether I finish Revelation 8 by 2 in two weeks. Your salvation's not dependent upon that. Your well-being's not dependent upon that. Really, nothing's dependent upon that. I'm just a servant, and I'm humbled to be able to share the Gospel today. I pray you were blessed. Anybody have any questions? Revelation chapter 8, we're in the heart of it. I hope to be finished through this chapter, and then we'll pick up when we get back in the Lord's timing. Again, if you want to kind of hear the context of this message going back, you're welcome to... Uh, uh, look these up online. It's free. Everything's free. Our ministry is free as the Lord provides, whether we're printing scriptures 
or uh, sharing the Word of God through audio podcasts. So there's nothing you have to pay or anything like that. But it w- hopefully it'll be a blessing to you, and I would welcome any feedback. I don't have the answer for everything, but God does. So.